Hey, this is Brenna Blaine, and you're listening to Can I Say That? Hey everyone, this week on the show we have Matt Bowen talking about women in ministry and what the Bible has to say about their role in the church, uh, which is a topic of importance and interest to me uh, for most of my walk as a Christian. I'd say pretty early on it's something that the Lord made me passionate about and I'm still passionate about today. But also, as a man, I don't personally experience the ramifications of our church's policies and church policies and of more uh, broad sense but as a woman Brenna you are directly affected by these things and I wanted to know what what's your experience well I mean why don't I be edgy right off the bat and say I think people ask who know us will say hey were you talking about our church when you said that and well with this yes because this is my experience so I've only been to three churches in my life and so I am talking about the three churches that I've gone to. Um, But I also want to say, in those three churches and the churches that I'm at, the church that I am at right now, currently, um, there have been individuals who have championed me and my giftings really well. Mm. The interesting part is, all three of those churches would fall under the policy of of being um, complementarianists. And if you don't know that language, don't worry, we'll explain it as we get further into the podcast. But the thing about that and being a woman in ministry is all three of those churches have either said, we don't believe women are pastors or, or they don't affirm women as pastors in action. So because of where they land policy-wise and because of how they actually act when it comes to people in ministry, they often fall into um, engaging in a lot of hypocrisy. That sounds really pointed. But what I mean by that is, we'll take the example I just gave. Uh, Complementarianists don't affirm women as pastors. Um, And then I see women's directors. Well, what is your job description? Is your job description to pastor? I have been in a role where I was youth director. Was I coordinating events and directing information? N- no. That I would not have that job if that was the job. I think within the same lane as well, there are people who would say, well, women can speak in secondary ministries as you know, young adults, middle school, high school, but just not on a Sunday. So then are we saying that those ministries aren't church? Are we saying, well, we don't actually teach doctrine in our young adults in our high school ministries? And so those are some inconsistencies that I've noticed. And it's also hard to be, um, I think, a young woman and for someone to say, hey, uh, we don't believe women can be pastors, but can you come and lead this small group? Yeah, you're seeing the same job with the same roles and requirements within the church when it's held by a man is being called pastor, but when it's being held by a woman is being called director. And that you're saying that it should either be that the church doesn't believe that women can be pastors and then they shouldn't be having women pastor, mm-hmm. or they believe that women can pastor and they should call them pastors. But what you're seeing is them saying they can't be pastor 
so let's just give them a pastoral job and call it something different and look they're not being pastors yeah it's it's for me it's like hey either be a hard complementarianist or just be moderate fall in that view but i i i see a lot of evangelical churches maybe grab the more conservative quote-unquote conservative view um but then operate in a way that isn't doesn't line up with what they say and so um that's frustrating to say the least as a woman who is asked to step into those positions and i think it it's even regardless of this topic or who it is it's like if the church is saying they believe something if their words are not lining up with their actions then it's it's frustrating just even as anyone in the in the church to be like well if you're not doing what you're saying how do i know when Mm. you say something that you actually mean it and that you actually believe it. Yeah, in short, clarity is super important within the church that your beliefs actually line up with your actions. And um, some of you might be really heated right now, um, assuming because I'm a woman speaking about women in ministry, uh, my view and where I land. And I invited Matt to speak on this topic specifically because he is educated at not liberal universities uh, and he's not a woman and so he doesn't have something quote unquote to to prove but there's questions that I've wrestled with being feeling like I'm called to speak and me saying hey God um your word's really confusing because I feel like you've called me to do this am I going to hell or where where do you where what do you mean when you say all this stuff in in the bible and so I'm really excited for you guys to hear Matt and everything he has to say on this topic. And you guys, it is jam-packed with all the references in scripture that talk about gender and where they are and are not to operate. And that was also a shocking statement. So maybe I am complimentarianist that I just said that. Okay, let's dive in. Scenes of weed, essentially. And like I was just about to ask, what do you guys think about weed? Oh well, see, there you go. But I see this on like everybody's. Again, these are gross, over generalizations. I've seen this a lot. But it's a company that like individually doses out amounts and different types of pot for different like settings or problems that you're facing. How is it? I don't know. We've never uh, done it. <laughs> we have but I just think that's like, I think that's interesting. That it's that marketable it's now. super marketable. Well, what do you, so what do you guys think about that in the context of being pastors? Mm-hmm. If you are like, I struggle with this type of pain, and they can mm-hmm. market a product to you for mm-hmm. that pain, it's not supposed to do anything else. Mm-hmm. Is it still, mm-hmm. is it something you would encourage people to take part in or not? That. Yeah, it's a really good question. A I don't. Trick, a it is. I don't know that I'm in a spot where I feel like I can encourage, but I don't know that I'm in a spot where I would prohibit. Mm. You know, depending on the person and their relationship to recreational drug use, mm. right? So there are certain people that would be like really wise to stay far, far away because mm-hmm. of the rabbit trail that they've already gone down and would perhaps likely go down again. 
Um, our staff has agreed not to use marijuana products mm-hmm. at all. I think part of it is its cultural connotation on one hand. Like, I think it, we've just agreed that that feels like it has more of a compromising that was uh, really, you were really serious. Uh, serious effect, <laughs> perhaps. Um, well, I'm well, trying to I think was, it through because we, yeah. we haven't talked a lot about it. It's kind of been like, yeah, we agree. This is not something we're going to do. But I think Duh. But for it's not the age of our staff, yeah. largely and culturally, it was like, no, 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 no. Okay, it's okay now. And so that's like a hard like yeah. flip switch. Yep, yep. Where you're all, wait, what? Like everything that I've ever known for the last 30 yeah. 30 years, 29 sure. years, is that it's right. not okay. And then all of a sudden it's like, it's okay. Hmm. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? And there's a lot. Yeah. So like, there's a lot to what? say there. Like but. Know, yeah, because it was easy to pass off and be like, well, it's illegal. Right. So don't For do sure. things that right. are illegal. Right. Right. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh. Yeah. Now this is like sex. Right. How is it? How is it like sex? Sex is Well, because you can do sex if you want. Do the sex. You can do the sex. <laughs> yeah. So now all the kids are like, do we do the sex? Do we not do the sex? Right. Because it's not illegal. Right. Right. And there are some things God's word speaks to, like the sex. Mm-hmm. Or it doesn't speak to the, <laughs> the, the marijuana's. That's where I think it's important not to lay down a law mm. where there is not one, but it gets back to... That's because you're not a six. Right. <laughs> lay them all down. Lay all right. the laws down. It has a different cultural baggage mm. than, say, an IPA in Portland. You know what I mean? Like. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that you can argue that, though, because if you're going to say in Portland... And among churches. There you go. Or Calvinists. Totally. <laughs> That's fair. So, a couple episodes ago, we got to know you, Lauren, and Mm. your background. And so, Matt, it's your turn. Before we jump in, can you tell us, like, about your story, how you became a pastor, and some of your educational background? I think the most important things about who I am is I'm married to Lauren, and we have three kids. Uh, Penny, who's 11, Milo, 8, and Eloise is 6. And so, um, that's our fam. Uh, I came to know Jesus at an early age. Um, There's just something really compelling about who Jesus was, and it made sense to me Mm. to trust him. Yeah, my heart strangely warmed, right, to Mm. use the language of Wesley, that there's like, it just... Did you say to use the language of Wesley? Yeah. Like most people are gonna, people are gonna be like, "Who's Wesley? Is he? Is that Bryce? like the guy from? Um, isn't that the guy from uh, Princess, Princess Bride? Bride? Yeah, right. Yeah, that guy. <laughs> I've made one of the great blunders. <laughs> um, sorry. I can't say. You, you're gonna mock me the whole time. <laughs> I'll rewind that. So yeah, I trusted Jesus at an early age. There was something about Jesus that was compelling. Um, I I just found myself. Uh, like just attracted to who mm. who this Jesus was that this made sense, and uh, so I grew up as an only child, which I often say has had to be discipled out of me. Um, but uh, there's like this really uh, kind of cool thing that God has done through my own family story, where the church just was this place where I saw God actually do some really powerful things in my family, uh, and so the church always seemed to make sense to me as not a place you go, but this people in which God was very redemptively active. And so I think I always had this soft spot for the church. And uh, somewhere in middle school, mm-hmm. I think I, I, you know, I was being somewhat discipled by a youth pastor, and I it was, had started a habit of reading scriptures. And 
I think at that point I knew, like, I want to be where people's lives and God's word meet. Mm. And then I tried to run from that sense, um, or at least keep it at arm's length, until somewhere towards the end of high school, God continued to put me in places where, and in relationships, where I was trying to translate who I was meeting Jesus to be in the scriptures and to people who uh, were either very religious externally but deeply unhappy mm. or um, very much party people but incredibly soft towards God. And so um, there was this place where I just felt like, oh, God, I think you want to use me in people's mm. lives. And I see people reject you, but it's not the real you they're rejecting. It's some veneer or misrepresentation yeah. of you. And I think, yeah, so I didn't know that I wanted to be a pastor per se, but I went to Multnomah, um, then Bible College, just to be available to mm. Jesus. I was like, I, I don't know, I think you I think I want to be in some kind of ministry. I have to learn some stuff. I don't know a lot. Mm-hmm. And yeah, just really quickly found that desire to be where God's word and God's people and culture were intersecting. Mm. Which ended up meaning pastoring um, in local church. So I spent some time in middle school ministry, which is where we got to meet yeah. you. And um, you you were once a middle schooler. Uh, aye, aye, aye. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then wore different hats throughout the years in ministry and planted a church just over a year ago now mm. um, after about 15 years in one, one, one church. Um, Anyway, throughout that time, I went back to school because Multnomah was phenomenal. Um, I had a great education. I felt like there was, I had a treasure that I was responsible to steward. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you get the, these incredible faculty and material that many people in the world never get a mm-hmm. chance to even bump into. So I started really enjoying the idea that as much as I wanted to go on and do more school, I, I felt very responsible to just live out what I had already gained. And, mm-hmm. But I finally, I just felt like I need some more mentorship. So I went to Western Seminary for a while and was in a really great small cohort of pastors with Gary Bashirs and some others. And it was a phenomenal time and I grew a lot. But then I ended up switching back mm-hmm. over to Multnomah to finish finally be like Tommy Boy at the end of this thing and say lots of people go to school for seven years and then somebody's going to look at me and say, yeah, they're called doctors and I'll still only have a master's out of it. But it's been a long, long run and Mm. it's been really good. Currently focused on contextual leadership. So Mm. looking at missiology from a Trinitarian perspective. Yeah. So we're here today to talk about not just women in ministry, Mm -hmm. but where do both genders belong within ministry? Yeah. And I guess to use pointed language, I have a lot of liberal friends that say, well, why does it even matter? Mm-hmm. And then I, I have a lot of super... Oh, I didn't mean to emphasize that word. I have, I have a lot of strongly conservative yeah. friends who say, well, why is it an issue? Because we see in the Bible it says women yeah. belong in these areas and not these other areas. So mm-hmm. my question mm-hmm. to start us off is... Yeah. Why is this even a question within yeah. the Christian community? That's great. Um, and it is, it's, a, it's a big issue, right? Mm-hmm. It's a, certainly been a significantly more hot issue lately. But it's always mattered. It's always mattered to God because it's really not a current issue. It's actually just an Imago Day issue. Mm-hmm. It's a theological issue, so it's always mattered. It, it just hasn't always been as hot 
a topic, um, but it's always mattered to God, and I think that is important to keep in mind. Um, that God has used men and women throughout the entirety of Israel's history and throughout the history of the church, and so both genders have always been a part mm-hmm. of this unfolding mission of God. So first of all, I think it matters just simply because God cares about it and speaks to it. And I think some of the reason it's such an issue is because of what we see described in Genesis, is there's this rift that's created because of sin, that there now it creates a condition in which the world moves in rebellion. Mm. And so, so much of the tension is there because of what's ultimately been wrong with all of us mm. <laughs> for all of human history. So, so anytime sin's in the picture, it's going to cloud what we see in scripture too so we all bring baggage i think the other piece to it too is it's really important and an issue because there's new testament texts that seem to present us with a problem Mm. Um, so when i've talked about this before i've tried to say um it's not an issue about women like women aren't an issue to be solved it's a textual issue we're trying to be faithful to an ancient text that was written to a a very different culture in our own moment. And so it's really an issue of understanding, interpreting, and applying a textual issue. Mm. So so that's why, yeah, you know, that's why it's there. The two, the, the polarity is between Galatians 3, where Paul announces all are one in Christ, man, mm. woman, slave, free, all ethnicities. And so it's this Magna Carta for the egalitarian argument that really there's no distinction anymore. Mm. Uh, in the New Covenant. And then on the other side, Paul says stuff to the Ephesian church and First Timothy in particular about uh, women remaining quiet and not speaking uh, or teaching authoritatively uh, to men and, uh, and then his description of elder and all of that kind of stuff. So th- that presents another tension and then becomes the, kind of the, the capstone for the more hierarchical or we call hard complementarian kind of view that, that there's a restriction uh, on women in, mm. in ministry. And so you have these two views and they clash and, and then you have to make a make sense of all the texts in between. So yeah, okay, and so I just threw out language that I feel like we need to clarify. Mm. So there there's essentially three different takes on the question of, and it's not a question of nobody's debating should women be in ministry. Mm. That's not a debate. There's universal agreement that new covenant mission and ministry for men and women the question is and the debate is about office of leadership and in particular ministries that exercise some sort of authority or teaching over both men and women Mm. so the person on on the on one side is going to say of course women should be a ministry to kids and other women and that's appropriate. Then the other person on the other side of this argument is going to say, of course, ministry. And if they're gifted and qualified, elder and lead pastor and all of these kinds of things, right? So the the issue comes down to a couple of things. One is church polity. Not everybody has the same kind of model of leadership. So there are churches that are elder-led, lay elder and staff elder, perhaps, um, which is just a term that means overseer. It comes from the New Testament, and it's an office that's mentioned. But there are certainly churches that don't have an elder Mm. um, or any elder board. So that then muddies up this conversation because experientially they're used to voting or, you know, it's a far more flat view uh, or there's some kind of 
denominational structure to it. So that's another piece to the equation. So anyways, let me go back and look at what are the words we just used. I used the word egalitarian and hierarchical or complementarian. So we'll work from egalitarian over. Um, beginning with egalitarian, we're really saying it's, uh, it's a position that's going to say men and women are partners together everywhere in life mm -hmm. and all ministries and offices of the church are equally open to all qualified men and women. So gender's really not a relevant distinction uh, for the egalitarian position. Uh, there's no exclusion for a woman from any office. So that's the egalitarian side. The hierarchical side, sometimes what's called complementarian or hard complementarian, is that women have an important ministry to women and children. <laughs> Uh, and they should not exercise any ministry that includes public teaching to the corporate body or the exercising of authority over men. Mm -hmm. Those two are polarities. Here, here's what is important to note. Both sides of this, and this is what makes it a harder conversation, both sides of that equation are going to say, we believe in the inspiration and authority of Scripture. Mm -hmm. uh, they're going to argue their points from the text, not just from experience or from emotion. There's examples of bad arguments from both sides, but there's also great scholarship on this. Over the last 30 years in particular, there's just been an unending swath of literature on this. And so, yeah, you're, you're going to bump into people who are arguing from the text with an assumption that God has inspired Scripture. It's truthful and reliable. So that's not being debated mm -hmm. in this conversation. It is for some, but it, it's not necessarily. Uh, the other piece to it is both sides are going to say man and woman are made in God's image. Mm. They're both equal in worth and value before God. So that's another important piece to that. We just have to hold on to that and trust that both sides are agreeing to yeah. some of those basic things. Um, there is another third position uh, which would basically, I'll call it a moderate position mm. or a soft complementarianism mm. if you will. Com and the compliment thing is kind of Maybe that's a funny, it's funny language, but it's the, the, the line of thinking is that men and women are different and yet they have complementary yeah. features and roles, which, I mean, biologically is true, mm -hmm. right? Um, but also, it's, it's meant to say neither one is complete, mm. that, that we need both and. But the moderate position is going to say women are encouraged to minister in any office or ministry uh, open to any non-elder, assuming that there's qualifications and appropriate gifting. So in other words, the the only restriction is going to be for the office of elder mm. in a moderate position. Mm. Now, you can look at all three of those positions and see how each one's going to interpret key passages from Genesis 1 and 2 through Genesis 3, the ministry of Jesus, the letters of Paul, Acts, all are going to have slightly different takes on how those passages are read. So this is why it's an issue, right? Yeah. Because there's actually, there's confusion from well-meaning people who want to submit their lives to the authority of Scripture. Mm. So that's really confusing. Yeah. And it's not always easy to navigate, especially when this is also something that's deeply personal. It, it's personal for anyone who feels, I am, I am made by God for this kind of ministry. And then you're told, well, yeah, that's, that's great, mm. but you have that's limited now for you, and you can't you can't offer that gifting to the whole body. That can only be for kids mm. or other women, right? That that starts to hurt, and so now you have pain involved in this and all of that. Now there are plenty of women who would be happy on 
in in a hard complementary and mm-hmm. hierarchical view, and they go, yeah, that feels right to me, and I'm cool there. Others, it's going to feel oppressive, and and that's so. This is where fears start to get introduced to this whole conversation too, which makes it also significantly harder. Um, the fear is going to be, you know, um, if you're an egalitarian, the fear is oppression. Mm. You're going to oppress me. You're going to oppress other women. You're going to oppress our daughters by by holding to your hierarchical view. And then if you're coming from a hierarchical view, usually the fear of the egalitarian position is you're compromising scripture. Doesn't the Bible just say this? So why can't we yeah. just stick with what the Bible says? The problem is the Bible has to be interpreted. Mm. And it was written to a context for the whole church across time. And now you have to understand what was the author saying. Mm. And, I, and I do want to say... Uh, you know, as it relates to this particular issue, we have to be very careful to be humble in it because there's really bright people on, on all sides of it. Mm. Um, godly, bright people. The key, though, is, you know, as we work through biblical texts, the key is to not change the biblical teaching because there's pressure to, that that's that the church is always going to find itself having a prophetic witness in a culture and some of what it declares as good news is going to feel like bad news to that culture. Mm. And so you can't just say, well, we have to read it differently because there's pressure to read it differently. That, that, that's not faithful. On the other hand, too, there, we have to be careful not to assert a teaching that doesn't actually reflect the intent of an author. So to go farther than an author is mm. actually saying. Um, that would be a, a, a misreading of a text. Or to say, well, so to add to what they're saying or to take away from mm, it. Say, yeah. well, they're not really saying this because I'd rather, I'd rather that they mm-hmm. didn't. Those are just intellectually dishonest positions. Mm. And I think we have to take the time and have the humility and grace with each other to try to land it in an intellectu- mm. intellectually honest yeah. place. Before moving forward in this conversation, a good or something we need to discuss is when we're looking at pastors and elders in the bible mm-hmm. is pastor and elder exchangeable mm. are they synonymous mm-hmm. what is that yeah it's great well it's two different words in greek elder is a is an office and so is deacon both mm. of those are offices in the new testament pastor is brought up as gifting mm. um so to, in the congregation that i'm a part of and um, a church that i'm a part of the way we differentiate those two things is that the offices are are elder and deacon, uh, and we affirm the gifting of pastor. Okay. So not everybody that is a pastor on our in our church context is a is an elder. Mm. So we have lay elders, and the lead teaching pastor in each congregation is is also an elder. So there's one staff elder and and lay elders mm. for each congregation. And that differentiation is, is, is helpful, I think, for us on a couple of fronts. But, um, that, yeah, I, I think the argument that women can't be pastors is an argument, argument somewhat made in ignorance mm-hmm. um, because there's no, no textual um, basis to say that the gifting of pastor is somehow limited to men. That mm. feels like uh, you're making something up there that feels convenient, um, perhaps, for your view, but mm. it's certainly not an honest position at that point. If you take pastor as gifting, that seems like the clear textual evidence is that, uh, so like Ephesians 4, um, Jesus 
who ascends and uh, descends in the incarnation and ascends uh, and sends the Spirit is the Jesus who gifts the church uh, for the building up of his body. And the things that are listed there are the gifts of apostle and evangelist and teacher and, and shepherd. Mm-hmm. Uh, the shepherding pastoral piece is something that, that is gifting. And then uh, when Paul talks about appointing elders to Titus on Crete or to Timothy in Ephesus, He's talking about these two offices. Mm. It's interesting that you're talking about giftings and how in Ephesians, mm-hmm. I believe it's mm-hmm. how he's Ephesians talking four. about like all, all by the same spirit, mm-hmm. and that this is sort of an aside, but I, Brent and I talk about this sometimes. How it's interesting that we muddle mm-hmm. the gifts a lot, and how mm-hmm. when we say pastor in the Western Church, mm-hmm. what we really mean most of the time is we're referring to the person who stands on stage and gives a message mm-hmm. and teaches, mm-hmm. whereas those are actually distinct giftings. Mm-hmm. Not that, obviously, it's wrong that someone with both giftings yeah. fills that role, but that when we think of pastor, yeah, we think of it more as what you're saying, an office, mm-hmm. and it also encompasses many other, it's like a culmination of multiple gifts yeah. that we see packaged together most of the time. Yeah, It's a gift, as you're saying, mm-hmm. in that the gift, all gifts come from the spirit, mm-hmm. the same spirit, to man, to woman, yep. to... Yeah, I, I, I frankly think it makes a lot of sense. Um, and you could parse it different ways, I guess, but at, at the end of the day, the thing that seems to make sense to me as I read the text is to say you can have an elder who is a shepherd as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also have a shepherd who's not an elder. In our context, we have non-elder pastors and we have elder pastors. Mm-hmm. Um, and an elder in, in that office has particular responsibilities to the body. Uh, I think the key differentiation is a pastor is being released to exercise gifting for the sake of the body mm. and doesn't carry the same burden of responsibility as an elder. So now that we've laid out essentially three different views yeah. and talked about the difference between elder and pastor, mm-hmm. what is your view on do you think a woman could get up and teach on a Sunday morning to men and women out of the Bible? And, and, the, and yeah. why? Yeah, great. Yes, the answer is yes, absolutely. Um, I have no, no problem with that. In fact, I just had a long-time friend and a mentor to my wife, and um, probably more to me than she wants to take ownership for, uh, <laughs> come and preach uh, sometime this summer. And... Uh, She's great. Just an uh, amazing gift to our body, uh, my friend Mary. In fact, other Colossae congregations as well um, have, have recently had women preach to the whole, whole body. So short answer is yes, absolutely. And then why? That's going to take us a little bit of time to get there. I think it's important to work through mm-hmm. some Bible texts, yeah. probably, would be the most helpful thing. Because anybody who's listening is going to go, well, okay, what about? Mm-hmm. And they're going to have some things come to mind. And And... I will just say, just for my own autobiographical comment, I was I grew, came to well, I came to faith before this church, but I really grew up in my faith in a church that was hard, hierarchical, complementarian. Mm. And yet the irony was the the wife of the pastor at the time was deeply involved in the youth ministry and was a profound impact mm. on all of us. Yeah. Um, so her faith and her her presence in the youth ministry was made a profound difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet at the same time, I remember being on a trip, missions trip in Mexico, uh, sitting next to the senior pastor 
who happened to come with us, and and there was a woman on a stage preaching, and she was yelling, mm. uh, and she was charismatic. She, she yeah, she's also <laughs> from Latin America, yeah. right? Not not a white person from Seattle, mm. right? So there's very reserved and fairly arrogant, um, which is that's my background, um, and so reserved and arrogant, reserved and arrogant <laughs> for sure. Oh yeah, definitely. And so I just remember the senior pastor leaning over to me and going, this is why women shouldn't preach. And I'll never forget it. Because I thought, at the time, I was somewhat, I was a new Bible college student. I think I was 19 or maybe 20 at the time. And I thought, I don't know that that feels right. Hmm. Um, I kind of understand, like, the angry yelling thing. But I I have some examples of men who shouldn't preach then, too. Hmm. If we're going to say that that's... That's disqualifying. Mm. Then take an even look across the room and mm. see who else is seems belligerent yeah. <laughs> from the front. So anyway, this is this is the background um, from which I came to the conversation with a hard complementarian, and then also uh, this profound influence as well from from women in, in the church. So I think uh, a couple things uh, as it relates to the teaching in the New Testament. Uh, let's let's kind of dial up some Bible passages here. At the end of the day, it's First Timothy two that's going to get the most yeah. heat, right? So, and I feel like too, it's important to mention our, our Genesis background too, mm. uh, when it comes to even the language that's used there in Genesis two. It's a, um, you know the man's alone, the one not good thing in all creation. I said this guy's solo. God's God's at least bummed on it because. It doesn't work. Um, not good doesn't mean evil. It just means it doesn't work. Mm. And so it doesn't work for the for Adam to human alone. He can't. He can't do it. Yeah. Uh, he can't be fruitful and multiply alone. He can't. He can't steward the garden and fully image apart from uh, otherness. He needs mm. an, another. And so when God makes the woman, uh, he he uses this word etzer, helper, suitable, so like but different. Etzer is a, you know, really, it's not an assistant to the regional manager. It's really important that we keep that in mind. In fact, the word Etzer is usually used to describe God. Hmm. God is Israel's Etzer. It's the stronger person who comes alongside to help the, the former. Where does my Etzer, where does my help come from? It comes from you, Yahweh. Um, it comes from heaven. So when we're talking about an Etzer, we're talking about a very strong partner. Um, uh, and, and to like just because Adam names Eve, it also doesn't mean that he, you know, has authority mm. over her. Um, Hagar names Yahweh. She doesn't have any authority over Yahweh. Yeah. She's describing the nature of what she's encountered, mm. and so it's a descriptive act of being accurate. And Adam's accurate in his description of Eve, and so and then you you get into Genesis three and. What happens on the other side of the corruption and fall? Uh, at the end of the day, I'll just give you my take. I think the whole thing on her desire will be uh, for you, and he will rule. Uh, this this language, at very best, is really ambiguous. Mm. Desire can be bad, and it can be good. In the next chapter, desire is bad because sin desires to to get you, you know, mm. to Cain, and uh, you must rule. Um, so there's desires bad there, but in Song of Solomon, desire is really good. Mm. So the beloved desires 
the other, and it's a it's a positive thing. So it seems at best, it seems like desire it can be good and it can be bad depending on on the context. Mm. Same with rule. Um, good kings rule well. Bad kings rule badly. Again, this rule and desire thing it can be the grace of God that she still wants to be with this loser. It can and rule can be a good thing if he uses what is given to him by the Creator sacrificially for the good of the other. Mm. That can be really good. It can also be really bad mm. if he's selfish. It can be really bad if she's constantly undermining and mm. biting at him. So that desire and rule thing se- seems to be play into the Hebrew ambiguity uh, that we see throughout the Old Testament. So it's not them just saying, like, you're going to want to disobey your husband right. and he's going to set you straight. Yeah. That's not, not what we're reading. Okay. No. Yeah, that's, that would just be to steamroll right over the way the language is used throughout mm-hmm. the rest of the Old Testament. So there's an ambiguity, okay. and it depends on context and ultimately the character of those two people mm. and how they're playing into the story that they're a part of. Mm. So fast forward to Jesus, and his ministry is profoundly inclusive of women. The, you know, John 4, the fact that he's having a conversation uh, with, a, with a woman at the well, uh, is profoundly countercultural mm. to begin with. We, we roll right past that. Because you're like, yeah, I'll talk to a lady at the water cooler. <laughs> like, how's it going? How's your husband? Oh, you don't have one. Right? Like, that's mm. maybe a conversation we think is normal, but it yeah. wasn't normal for a first century Jewish man. And so that should be alarming us, mm. that, that something is happening in, in the presence of God in the flesh. And so... I, I think there's no mistake that in all the gospel accounts, the first person to declare the good news that Jesus is raised from the dead is a woman. Yeah, That's absolutely intentional on the part of all four gospel storytellers. Mm. It's a profound reality to me, and it's an amazing honor. So the first, the first proclaimer of the gospel is a woman in every gospel account. And when they... relay this is splitting hairs but when they relay that information would you consider that them teaching men new information yeah that's a declaration of Mm. good news the lord is risen he's not dead anymore they did not know that Mm. and it moves them to action they get up and go running we gotta go check this out right yeah and so they do um jesus's favorite disciple ran faster (laughs) <laughs> yes, totally. I love that one. Yeah. <laughs> this is the signature of my book. <laughs> I ran faster than Peter. Well, I think, yeah, so those are just a couple of, I mean, there's we could unpack more of what's happening in the synoptics and in John, but I, I do think, even, well, John is so fascinating because the entire crucifixion and resurrection scene is mapped onto Genesis 1 and 2. In a mm. profound way, um, so at the it's the seventh sign that crucifixion takes place on the you know the sixth day. Jesus is in the tomb on the seventh day. Mm. Uh, he raises from the dead on the first day of a new week. Mm. He's raised in a garden. He's his first interaction is with a woman. Wow. Um, John's being really intentional to say new creation has just dawned. Mm. It's just blown up out of this empty tomb 
And uh, I mean, you go back to uh, even the, the crucifixion scene, behold the man. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's, it's new creation has happened. Here's, here's the new human. And, uh, and he's placed by John in the garden with a woman. Not to say that Mary Magdalene is like the mother of new creation or anything weird like that, but it's very intentional to say that there is a new creation order that's birthed out of this empty t- um, this is not just primarily a male thing. Like, this is new creation with men and women. Which leads Paul to say in Galatians 3 that there's a whole new reality of being one in Christ. And so it, it levels the social playing field. Uh, there is a hierarchy of, of value in the way that there was in the first century world. Mm-hmm. So that the role women played in the early church was profound and countercultural. The other piece to keep in mind is in Acts uh, 18, Aquila and Priscilla. They're probably some of Paul's closest friends mm. um, that we read about in the context of his mission. It's because they worked together. They made tents and carried on business day in and day out in the marketplace mm. uh, with each other. And so in Acts 18, now a Jew named Apollos, uh, this is verse 24, a native of Alexandria came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being a fervent, fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but Priscilla and Aquila, her husband, heard him. They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Well, most scholars agree that placing the woman first in that order, mm-hmm. it's not Aquila and Priscilla, but Priscilla and Aquila, probably means she played a a more significant role hmm. in what follows next. And they sit down and have a theology lesson with Apollos. So here's this narrative example of a woman teaching a man theology. Hmm. I had somebody ask me the other week if there's a difference between teaching and preaching, because they had always heard that, that a woman could teach but not preach. And I, that, was, that was the first time I've ever even heard that. Hmm. I, there's no parsing of that in the New Testament. Um, you know, one's doctrine, the other's, I guess, moral lessons or something. Yeah, like, what, I, where does that I come from? feel like a big arg- argument that we've heard recently is that it's a man's job to protect and preach doctrine. And yeah. for me, I wonder, where is that in the Bible? It's an elder's job to take care, like, protect doctrine. And so you could argue hmm. that direction, but it doesn't negate a... Any other, any woman as a part of the body to teach good doctrine, mm. and I think Priscilla is a great example of that. He goes, "Whoa, that guy's, he's really talented, but he's not got the mm. full picture." So she unpacks the mm. Bible for him, and that's that seems to be very normal. Mm. So there's no, there's nothing that seems particularly male about doctrine. Yeah, um, I don't can't think of anything more doctrinally relevant than the resurrection of Jesus. You know, thanks, mm. Mary Magdalene. Yeah. You can't say that because you're a woman. Can you imagine? Can you just act it out? <laughs> spell it in the dirt? Yeah, could you just write it? We can read a blog from you. There we, we go. can't have you speak to us. <laughs> you you got to then fast forward to um, plenty of New Testament scholars assume, assume that Phoebe's role, uh, Phoebe's mentioned the end of Romans, was as a courier of Romans would have also been to preach Romans. So you don't... Uh, take a letter in the first century and just drop it off and mm. say, hey, Paul sent this. 
um, to be the person who took the letter from Paul to the church means to be the primary communicator of it orally in a gathered mm. context. So Scott McKnight was the person that I had either read or heard you talk about this, but again, first century context, the deliverer is going to also orally deliver the message. Mm. And so Paul's magnum opus of theology was f- most likely preached by Phoebe um, to the men and women in Rome, Jew and Gentile. Can you imagine? This is what Paul has to say. I had come here on behalf of the apostle. Boom. Sounds like trouble. Sounds like trouble. Tell me about it. But was her head covered? That's all we really yeah. want to know. <laughs> right, so let's fast forward to 1 Corinthians 11, uh, which is another important text that we have to that will also, when by the time we get to 1 Timothy 2, this will help us. So Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and there's an issue with men and women. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the women are praying and prophesying with heads uncovered, which really means their hair is let down. Mm-hmm. Um, and so let's, let's take a look at this. Now, uh, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with, prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. See, he goes on. And he does actually, well, let me just read all of this. It's fascinating. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair uh, or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought to uh, not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Okay, on and on it goes. This is a fascinating passage. It's universally acknowledged as one of the most difficult New Testament mm. passages to interpret. So it's a tricky passage, 1 Corinthians 11. At first glance, it does appear to establish some hierarchy between mm-hmm. men and women. That hierarchy here is most likely husbands and wives in this context. But um, the key issue is that in 11.4, it shows women praying and prophesying in the gathered church, which then cannot mean later in chapter 14 that women are to actually remain silent mm. all the time. So it can't mean logically yeah. that the women are to be silent. So... That that's because he does allow praying. Yeah, he just wants to make sure it's culturally mm-hmm. appropriate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's a couple things going on here. The head thing. I, I was this would take way too long to unpack what Paul means by head. The, the word kafale. When he also describes the woman as man's glory, glory is not a subordinate mm. kind of reality. So it is important to keep in mind that the head of a woman but then to say that she's the glory of man that like we're not talking about subordination mm-hmm. there most folks in the early church saw head as source and there was a responsibility but more important to the point is that to have your hair let down or uncovered was something the temple prostitutes did so mm-hmm. when paul saying hey you can't pray and prophesy Looking like a hooker. You, you can't do that. Like, that's... Why? Because it's bringing shame on your husbands. Mm. That's that's the issue. And in the same way, the dudes who look really effeminate are bringing 
shame on their wives in the context of this first century Corinthian church, mm. uh, which is already a very libertine culture, and uh, which basically means people are kind of just doing whatever they want. Yeah. And he's saying, look, you live in a culture where if you, if you do this, practice, you're going to bring shame on your husbands. And so the word of God's not going to be heard. Mm. In the same way, guys, like you don't act in a way that's going to bring shame on your wives. So it's, it's an honor-shame issue that's being talked about by Paul. But for the sake of this conversation and this podcast, we're, we're really trying to say God is for women speaking God's word. Uh, let's see, Gordon Fee, I think, was the one who says prayer is language uh you know, orient, oriented towards God, mm. prophecy is language oriented towards the body in this context. And so uh, it's an authoritative speaking of God's word to the people. And this was a normal practice that Paul is obviously aware of. He just wants them to not do it in a way that brings shame. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Fast forward to 1 Corinthians, well, actually, yeah, 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul says, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law, or Torah, also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in the church. This is also one of those great lines where now in the exact same letter that Paul has women prophesying in the church, just with their heads covered so mm-hmm. they don't bring shame on men, is saying, don't talk? Like This doesn't make any sense, right? Mm-hmm. So um, there's a couple of options on this in terms of how people read and interpret it. One would be that Paul is requiring silence on all women in all assemblies of churches everywhere, mm-hmm. which is immediately ruled out by the context. Two, uh, it could mean that Paul is requiring women to be silent in some qualified sense, that the uneducated women are interrupting the assembly and they just need to not throw a wrench in everything that's being said. That's mm-hmm. one option. The other option uh, is... That these these verses that I just read are actually Paul's citation of the Corinthian opinion. Mm. That the Corinth so there's a literary pattern throughout the book of Corinthians where Paul will quote them mm. and then immediately follow it up with a rhetorical question. It does it I think seven times, perhaps. Um, so go go look for all the rhetorical questions in First Corinthians and look ex- at the verses immediately preceding it, and you'll see whether or not Paul's quoting the Corinthians. Mm. And in this context, it seems like this is a possibility because the next line is, did the word of God originate with you? Right? Mm. And so it's a rhetorical question uh, that may very well be confronting a Corinthian view. That is an option. However, it would be an unlikely Corinthian point of view because the Corinthians are so libertine. Mm. Why would they be restrictive in this sense? Um, I'm not sure I can answer that question. The other option is it's an interpolation. In other words, Paul never said it. It was added to the Corinthian manuscript later on. And, other, and, and that's based on some textual evidence, that most Western manuscripts include these verses at the end of the letter rather than right where it is mm. in your modern Bible. There's a lot of textual variance here. I tend to like the literary view that it's Paul confronting a Corinthian, a bad Corinthian opinion, mm. essentially, and going, you guys are crazy. Stop it. Um, in other so, words, quoting them saying something that he's, he's absurd. Yes, yeah. exactly. So, man, I know we're just trucking through a lot of text. This is great. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so second, that's my wife laughing. He's like, is, is Matt talking great? Are we really? No, I'm just kidding. Um, just keep going. Okay. Right. You can delete that later. 
No, um, that's literally what I'm thinking. Keep it in there. They need to know. Oh, they need to know. Where oh where are we? Matt's still talking about women in ministry. It's great for me. I know, that's amazing. Yeah, uh, I had twelve years of that. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, now this is actually this first Corinthians two, eight through fifteen is really important and it's probably the, the crux of this conversation. So um taking all that we've had in mind so far. Mm-hmm. The idea in Genesis 1 and 2 that there isn't necessarily any hint of hierarchy. Difference, yes, but partnership. Mm. Um, Even Genesis 3, that there is a tension, there is some frustration between the male and female relationship as a result of sin. But even their desire and rule can be very ambiguous. Looking at how Jesus does transform the social dynamics his 12 are dudes. He's got 12 guys. Well, of course, because they're representative of a reconstituted Israel, mm-hmm. if you will, around his own person mm-hmm. and being that there's 12 apostles representing 12 tribes. And none of them are Gentiles either. Yeah. You don't have a Gentile apostle. You have an apostle to the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. Um, so, assistant uh, to the region. Assistant to the region. And then Acts, you have... You have Priscilla doing theology with Apollos and helping him walk away with a clearer picture of, of what's happened in and through Jesus um, and descending the Spirit and now baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit rather than just John's baptism of repentance. Mm. And now you have Paul talking to a out-of-control, chaotic church in Corinth about order, essentially, mm. in the context of the gathering. But there's no silencing or restriction on women teaching, or I should say, speaking God's word powerfully. Mm. That is what the, the, the prophetic thing would have been. It wouldn't necessarily have been predictive it was, as much as it was taking the truth of the scriptures and um, declaring it and applying it to the context that they're in. And, so, and to pray. So mm. both of these things are, are really important. As well as Phoebe, who's clearly a key player in Paul's ministry. Most well-known, you know, theological treatise on the gospel. So that's no small thing. So we get to First or First Timothy. It's a fascinating thing. Uh, let's, just, let's just look at it. First um, Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. Not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire. So uh, part of what's going on here is there is some, he's pointing some, pointing out some tendencies. Mm. Hey guys, use your hands for prayer and not violence. Mm. Men, come on. Right? Women, can, can we not play the pretty games? Like this isn't a competition. Mm. Okay. Seems to be what Paul's saying. Uh, and then he gets at, uh, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, choose to remain quiet. I'll stop there. So he wants the, the guys to stop playing power games. Use your hands for prayer, not for violence. He wants the women to stop playing the pretty games. Be godly. That's, that's what you're aiming for. Um, both of them, both men and women. He's calling them to Christ-like character. And then he says, let a woman learn. Uh, now this is our... Oh, this gets missed regularly, but it's opposed to Jewish synagogue practice where women were excluded from learning Torah with men. And that's the other piece, too, that I was going to say about that Corinthian quote in chapter 14. Paul says, um, 
according to the law, that, that the women should remain silent according to the law. There's nothing in the Torah that has anything to do with women being mm. quiet. So that's another piece to where like, what? So Paul's clearly not expounding on the Torah to make yeah. a principle. Mm. And Paul knows the Torah. And Paul knows the Torah better than you know the Torah. Back to this. Uh, women couldn't learn uh, Torah alongside men. And so this is already Paul saying they actually, they should learn. They should learn alongside uh, the guys, they just need to do so in, in quietness, which implies any proper posture for a student. You're not interrupting your teacher. Right? You're trying to absorb what's being taught. Uh, and the submission piece is about, it, it, it grammatically it modifies learn. So in other words, you're, Paul's aiming for a person who would learn so that they can submit to the truth that they're learning. Mm. Every parent says amen. Right? Like, yeah. when I teach you this, I want you to then do it. Not you know. So yeah. it's this... That's just good learning at that point. It doesn't necessarily have anything to do with women per se, as much as doctrine is meant to be learned and then live. 2.11 is essentially saying, let a woman learn and obey God's word. That, that is essentially what he's getting at. And that should characterize men too. And you see passages that would get at that, like 1 Corinthians 16.16 16 and Ephesians 5.21. They're to learn with the intent to obey submissively God's truth. Philip Payne, what does he say here? He says, to counteract the influence of false teachers on women, Paul calls them to modesty and good works and commands women to learn the true faith. Mm. So just to get into the spirit of what's happening there, that's that's the picture. And there does seem to be, as you read the pastoral epistles and the letters to Timothy in particular, there seems to be an issue in Ephesus with women and some false doctrine. Mm. And they have seemed to be the ones who have fallen prey to it in a particular way. And so you, there's there's hints all throughout the letter. There's some false stuff that they've picked up and mm. are putting back out. And he says, I don't permit a woman to, to teach or exercise authority over a man. So here's something that's pretty interesting about this text. And this is universally acknowledged, that this word is a hard word. Uh, mm. Authority is a pretty tricky word to interpret. Because it's used one time. I think this is important. Um, it's only use in the Bible is right here. Mm. And it's the Greek word authentane, and it's not Paul's word for authority. Paul's got other words for authority. His normal word for authority is exousia. If it just simply meant exercise authority, he would use exousia. Mm. There's something else going on here besides just flat authority. The, the only time we get this word used uh, there's two cognates of this word used in the Septuagint translation. Uh, one in Wisdom of Solomon 12.6, where the word means murderer. One in Third Maccabees, where it has to do with original or authentic. So that's a broad range. Yeah. Right? So when we're talking about, I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, that's a, that's a jump. <laughs> it's, a, it's a significant jump. I'm no Greek expert, but y- you can get into the scholarship on this one and you realize really quickly that it's not just a very it's it's not simple it's Mm -hmm. really one of the hardest passages to translate it should at least give us pause when translating authentine as simply exercise authority over because paul has 12 other words he can use for authority in his Mm -hmm. vocabulary and he has 47 words for rule and govern Mm -hmm. but he doesn't use any of them in fact if you look at like the classical Greek literature and the tragedies, this this word in its its noun form is often murderer or slayer or person who committed suicide. 
And so it has this wider semantic range, and it's, 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 it's tricky. One time, as a verb, it even shows up as dripping with blood. <laughs> and another point, it's had my way with, uh, oh. as in a dominant way over another person. So it, it's a very, very tricky word. So there isn't really any first century warrant for translating Aventane as to exercise authority per se. Just um, not, like, I can't murder any men. You should not murder men with your words. I'm fine with um, <laughs> it. It seems to be, given all the grammatical and lexical data, like permitting women to teach as to gain mastery over, mm. to teach with a view to dominate. Mm. Yeah. So now all of a sudden, I think it was Ray Lubeck who... Translated that... it as speak murderously. Okay. Um, and I, that may be fair. I, I just I don't have yeah. anywhere near the expertise mm. to speak to that. But when I t- absorb all the data that I can see on it, I, I think it makes sense to say that this has to do with a dominating posture. Mm. So he's not permitting somebody to teach in a way that assumes authority that hasn't been granted. Which would make sense in the Ephesian context in particular. Uh, where... There's a heretical thing that's being propounded uh, by women who are tied into the cult of Dionysus. Mm -hmm. So that makes some sense historically. It makes some sense lexically, and it makes some sense in the context. Where we go with this then in the moderate position, so the egalitarian position is going to read this and go, yeah, it's particularly about the Ephesian context, and women uh, couldn't teach because they didn't know truth. Mm -hmm. And then to the hierarchical position, it's going to mean, yeah, this is just flat out. You just don't give any... Uh, women can't have authority over men. Mm-hmm. Done. Done deal. The moderate position, I think, comes from uh, the person who articulates this, um, or the most well-known person who articulates this is Craig Blomberg, who basically looks at this and reads this as, doesn't Paul doesn't permit a woman to teach in a way that assume um, To teach as an elder. Mm. To assume an elder authority... Because of the next bit of context leads to whoever would aspire to the office of overseer, elder, mm. and then gives us a list of things. So you have this passage right up next against another, mm. an elder passage, which makes some sense to me. So it's assuming authority to teach as if in a self-assumed kind of uh, spiritual guru way, mm. right? Like, I have the truth in a way that's separate from the sanction of elders who are responsible um, for the protecting doctrine. Mm. Yeah, so Paul seems to be prohibiting an assumption of authority. Mm. That the overseers who are responsible to the congregation to protect doctrine can obviously invite a qualified and gifted man or woman to teach, but in this case, uh, where there's an abundance of heretical stuff flowing around Ephesus, um, it seems to be gripping the, these ladies. Paul's saying, don't, they can't teach it as assuming an elder mm-hmm. authority. Like, that has to be given, at the very least. That seems to be what's going on. Um, so, I, yeah, I tend to agree with Blomberg here on this. This is like, teach as an elder. And then, it, I mean, it does get even more interesting. The reason not to read this simply, and from my perspective, is uh, the reason not to read this is, a temporary thing. I'm not currently permitting, uh, but it's uh, a, a larger theology for Paul is the fact that he then grounds this in the Adam and Eve narrative, mm. which is an argument that doesn't make a lot of sense to modern people. But in an ancient context, 
it would begin to make a little bit more sense. It, it, there's some tricky stuff there, and we don't have enough time to it because we're getting at the end of the podcast. But um, you know, the, he, Paul makes this weird statement: women will be saved through childbearing. Um, like, what is that? And it does uh, grammatically. It's the childbearing um, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness and with propriety. That it would make sense to read that as pointing to the childbearing. Like Jesus. Yeah, the Messiah, Genesis three fifteen. So yeah, women and men will be saved through mm-hmm. the child. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the moderate position, at least, it makes sense to me because Paul doesn't restrict women in any ministry in any other place, which is confirmed by Acts. Um, other than elder here. And I think we need to turn the page and look at the elder deacon stuff. Yeah, to, to read this as hierarchical, I think would be in conflict with other clearer Paul, Paul texts um, where women are clearly speaking to the congregation and they're teaching theology. And there is an exercise of authority of the truth of God's word and so forth. Um, but you don't have any New Testament examples of women dominating in mm-hmm. an unwelcomed way nor uh, teaching from an elder, uh, as an elder. So, yeah, it seems to me that uh, as you turn the page and look at chapter 3, and, and there's going to be people who, who listen to your podcast and go, that's too far, I'm not comfortable, because it seems like the surface reading of the text is, this is, it's, it's, it, it's totally exclusive. Mm-hmm. Other people will go, that's just not far enough. Mm-hmm. You know, all of this... All of this stuff is uh, undone in Christ, and we're all one. And yes, one. Um, that doesn't mean or n- logically uh, eliminate the possibility of different roles. Mm, so, sure. uh, e- equality and difference of role are not mutually exclusive in any way. It depends on how that's all carried out and mm. handled. So, you turn the page, though, and he says, This is a trustworthy saying. If anyone aspires to the office of elder, overseer, he desires a noble task. And he gives a list. They need to be above reproach. A husband of one wife or a one-woman man getting down to faithfulness. It's kind of the marital faithfulness. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his household, how will he care for God's church? Um, he must not be a recent convert or he may become, become puffed up uh, with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be, thought, uh, must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. All of that language is male. Mm-hmm. So just to hold that in your head as then we turn, you know, continue down the page. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise... Okay, now this is a, this translation is an interpretive choice. Mm. Uh, it can also simply mean the women, likewise same word, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons also be the husband of one wife, managing their children, households well. So again, uh, integrity in the family. But I think what's important here is when you get the description of deacons, there's male language, and then there's also explicit female language, that Mm -hmm. it is the women also, the women presumably deacons also. Mm -hmm. Also, 
Uh, Phoebe is called a deacon. You have women who are called deacons in, in Acts and um, by Paul in the letters. So there seems to me that if Paul had the door open here for both men and women elders as well as he does with men and women deacons, Seems like he has an opportunity to spell that out. Mm. Now, arguments from silence are horrible arguments, and I, I'm not saying this is so airtight. And you know, this is one of those moments where you have to exercise the humility and go, "Man, best I know how to read this. This is where I'm landing." And uh, am I going to die on that hill? No, I will on the resurrection, but not mm. this one, right? Am I going to divide with somebody over that? I don't know. Like you have to, you have to figure that out. I don't know that it's a divide issue. Will it debate? Sure, we can debate. Can we Can we just decide and let it go? You know, So there's different levels of essentiality that I think you have to sort through on this. But um, for our congregations uh, at Colossae, we, we have just said, yeah, we read this as you know, fairly explicitly male language for the office of elder and um, fairly obvious mutual language for men and women as deacons. And so those are the two offices um, that we see in the New Testament and then I'd be an egalitarian tomorrow if it weren't for First Timothy three mm-hmm. and the the one woman man piece and the seeming differentiation between elder and deacon in that that language. Um, I'd be there in a heartbeat, but it seems like yeah, this seems to be the only restriction mm. on in terms of gender in the church, mm. um, and it doesn't prohibit teaching on a Sunday to men and women. It mm. doesn't prohibit women directing and. Uh, men reporting to women in a you know staff structure mm. either I think it does just come down to a weird mystery to me where it's like for some reason God has ordained that this is the way things will be yeah. in his church and even if women are better mm. <laughs> better uh, self-managers more you know whatever like mm. in many ways it doesn't necessarily mean that God's wrong on this one. Mm. Right? Uh, oftentimes, places of tension are places where we have the most room for growth. And, by the way, if you look at this character qualification for elders, if your elders are like this, they're going to listen to the women around mm. them. They're yeah. not going to dominate. They're going to be Jesus-y. They're going to actually... There will be a mutuality mm. to the way in which these kinds of elders will oversee the body. And it won't be an exclusivity. It will be... Think it will be a wise thing, and so if you have elders who work closely with deacons, it's not an oppressive structure. Mm. It's a actually a a careful, loving nurture of the whole body of Christ that has everybody's voice at the table in an important mm. way. So coming to a close, yeah. Why is it important that churches have women get up on Sundays? Mm-hmm. And preach the word, not just for other women, but for men. Yeah, well, some of it just goes back, honestly, to our understanding of the Imago Dei, mm. the image of God, that it requires maleness and femaleness, and there are differences in perspectives. Guys are going to pick up different things, and girls are going to pick up. You know, women are going to pick up stuff mm. intuitively that men are not as good at, um, and those things are going to come through in that exposition of the word. And I think both need to be heard because we're going to get a f- more full and robust picture mm. of our salvation and Jesus through both men and women. Some of it is just simply because we see, we see Paul uh, and we see the early church operate this way. And so I think there's an example to follow 
um, to some of us, just being faithful to who we are mm. as a people of God. The other piece, too, is there is a, I think culturally, we have, yeah, I think we have an opportunity to model a, a very healthy mutuality mm. that often is not in the world. Yeah. And so, sim- you know, simply put, I think men need to practice listening to women. I think that's a good discipline. Mm. I'm trying more and more wherever I can to make sure when I quote a Bible scholar or an author or even just a just a story, trying to incorporate a female voice in it, mm. even if I don't have a female preaching. Mm. So grabbing a quote from Fleming Rutledge or, you know, whatever, like them trying to try even, and it's somewhat difficult to do. I mean, you have... Uh, so many great quotes from 2,000 years of history from, sure, lots of guys, but that doesn't mean you can't try to elevate the great voices from women throughout mm. church history either. You just have to sometimes look harder, mm. you know. I don't think it takes much, though. I think, honestly, if you're pastoring a congregation, so much uh, is, wisdom is going to come from the women in your congregation, so it just means listening to the women in your congregation. Mm. Uh, it's easy to, for an illustration to come from, I was talking to so-and-so the other day, and here's what she said, and this, man, this struck me. Mm. That does a lot all of a sudden. Yeah. Um, sorry, I just took that from your question of women speaking to now me quoting women, but I'm just trying to think through. I think men pastors have a long ways to go, mm. and, and, and one simple thing to do is to try to look around and go, who is God gifted mm. around me? Um, if there's threat and insecurity in that pastor, then there's already a whole bunch of other problems. Mm. Um, it shouldn't be there, especially as it relates to gender. I think it's important. I think we mm. need it. I'm kind of, you're just kind of always looking for, okay, what men and women are, mm. is God raising up mm. in my congregation to, to communicate? Mm. And where you don't know, you go find somebody you do know and bring them in because it's interesting. Yeah. So tell me more. Why is that interesting? No, I think a lot of people use excuses. I've always heard the excuse when I've been like, why haven't we had a woman speak on a Sunday in the last five years? Yeah. Well, we don't know any good women speakers. Sure. You know, there's yeah. the internet. Yeah. You there's, can find someone. Yeah. You could drive somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's just important. I think it's, I mean, you do whatever you find valuable, right? Mm. So if it is valuable, it, you'll make it happen and... Yeah, you can make excuses all day long. But mm. I, I just want to be careful, though, too. I think um, there's contextual issues, too. So um, there are congregations where that could create a lot of division, and you mm. have to walk them through that carefully. I have a young church plant, so I just ripped the Band-Aid off. I, well, there wasn't even a Band-Aid. I, just, <laughs> I threw in the grenade of, if this is going to be a problem for you, oh, well, run. Yeah. But otherwise... Is who we we're going to be, and uh, and it had no adverse effects that I'm aware of. I, it created a couple conversations that were necessary, and it was a great opportunity to shepherd people through scripture. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I didn't teach to it ahead of time. I just said, "Meet my friend Mary." <laughs> I can do that because our culture is different. Mm-hmm. But in the church I was in previously, that was started in the '40s, I had to do that more carefully, mm. um, and it did. It was a larger wake of confusion. Because people, you know, take, tend to take their uh, interpretation on this matter as canon. Mm. We tend to not operate in most issues with humility. I think being young, there's always a point where I was like, I'm a speaker, so I, I should want to speak anywhere and everywhere, and I should make complimentary churches 
like want to have me speak Uh. and then getting older realizing for me to get up there and speak or for any woman would be more of a distraction and they want to actually hear the gospel so in that context it'd be more appropriate and more loving yeah to not push that agenda and i think too you have to create a culture of mutuality and for me, the experience of working really closely with amazing women has been incredibly important. And my last congregation, the two, the two most key, three most key people in my ministry overseeing our adult ministries, um, discipleship and formation of groups and all that kind of stuff were, were women, two of which were, I think, at least over 70. Mm. So there's an ageism piece to this yeah. thing, too, that we have to be careful of. But I thought the most, the most profoundly gifted, qualified people to help care for leaders in our church were these two women. They were just mm-hmm. phenomenal. And they got to speak into, yeah, just the DNA of mm-hmm. what we were doing uh, in significant ways. So I, I just think, yeah, it's going to come out of your view of who God is, of, of what the church is. I, I just think our, our reading in the New Testament is one that says women are equal partners in gospel gospel work. Mm. Uh, and and if that's not a baseline kind of understanding of what Jesus has, has done, it can get really weird really quick. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and if your elders don't have that kind of view, it can become a man club. Mm. And that, that's a, that would be a bummer. It would diminish the work. You know, and so in our con- our current context, there's women leading stuff all over the place, mm-hmm. and we'll just continue and and men. So again, it's not the exclusion of one over mm-hmm. the other. It's it's a vital thing for us to have a balanced picture of who God is mm-hmm. in community through men and women. So anyway, that's my that's my kind of spiel on all the texts. Yeah, without any apology, it's like, oh, I think that's a male office, but man, the deacon and other stuff, that seems to be male-female, there needs, seems to be no restriction on speaking, and mm-hmm. those kinds of things, uh, if we understand these passages mm-hmm. in the ways that I've described. Yeah. And fundamentally, we're called to love and submit to one another. Mm-hmm. So, like, there's, there are bigger brushstrokes mm-hmm. that, that put all of this in a color of love and humility. Mm-hmm. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in. If you like what you heard or want to know more about our podcast, I want to invite you to follow us on Instagram at can I say that? That's where you can find what our next topic is going to be, who's speaking, and a lot more about them. We also invite you as an audience member to be a more active part of this conversation by participating in polls, answering questions, and even sending in comments and messages. Fair warning, though, some of them can be kind of frustrating. But please don't let that keep you from engaging, learning, and pressing in. After all, that is what the show is about, asking Christians hard questions. So please come and join us.